Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark 11. We're entering the final third of Mark's gospel here. And this is actually gonna take us all the way up till Easter. When we get to the resurrection bit in Mark's gospel, we will be Easter Sunday at Herring Auditorium. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, amazingly, the entire back third of Mark's gospel deals with what we call the passion of Christ or the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, in fact, there's so much attention is given to this particular window of time in his life that scholars, in their jokey kind of way, it's not a very funny joke, but they refer to the gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with a bit of an introduction. That's scholarly humor there, so <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, last week, we kind of looked at this new intensity that we find in Jesus as he turned from Galilee and turned toward Jerusalem. Mark's gospel says he was out in front leading the Passover pilgrims to Jerusalem, to the temple. Uh, Luke's gospel says it this way. It, it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem or in the ESV that he set out resolutely toward Jerusalem. And so they all note this kind of new intensity of Jesus. He's, he's not in the middle of the crowd. He's not moving slowly. He's out in front. He's intense and he is set to, to lead these folks uh, to Jerusalem. And that generates some mixed emotions. For the 12 disciples, we're told that they were astonished. And then for the Passover pilgrims that are heading to temple, we're told that they were afraid. And so last week, we kind of looked at those emotions. Why do they feel that way? What does that tell us about what's going on here and their expectation? And the answer is, everybody is expecting a showdown in Jerusalem. They're expecting confrontation. They think Jesus is about to disturb the peace, to reestablish his kingdom and the messianic order by removing Rome from their sort of occupation of the area. Um, so then Mark basically teleports us from this moment, uh, 80 miles all the way to Jerusalem. And here we find Jesus in his celebrated arrival, his entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And what we find here is a royal reveal. That's what I want you to be paying attention to. Chapter 11, verse one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the ground while others spread branches they had uh, cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. So first of all, what we find here is this is a moment where Jesus is revealing himself as a peacemaking king. And I want you to note too, just, just how public all of this is. 
Because that's a bit of a departure from what we have found throughout the gospel of Mark up until this point. Up until this point, Jesus is regularly telling his disciples, don't tell anybody about that miracle. Okay, I just delivered you from this demonic possession. Don't tell anybody. Just kind of keep all of this on the download. That's been his regular message. Even, even the gospel of John, we find the phrase, my time has not yet come, right? So Jesus' MO up to this point has been to sort of keep his messianic identity kind of quiet and private, but now things are about to change. He has tempered this revelation until just the right moment, and this is it. The messianic secret is over. Coming into Jerusalem here and the manner in which he does it, Jesus might as well have put a crown on his head and picked up a scepter and a cape or whatever else says king because he is making that over declaration to be king. When I was a kid and um, grew up in a small Baptist church in Apple Valley, California in the high desert, and when we would come to uh, the triumphal entry, we would come here every, we would celebrate it every year. I, I just invariably would think Jesus needs a better ride. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, this donkey imagery is not doing anything for me. It does not feel very triumphant. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem congruent with the moment. Why isn't he in a chariot, right? Why not a, a big stallion, a horse, or one of those little thrones that people carry around, you know? Uh, why isn't he in something like that that shows a little more emphasis on his royalty here? Well, in fact, uh, culturally speaking, kings would ride upon a donkey, particularly in a time of peace. And so it's significant that this is his ride because of the imagery here. There's two, at least two important things. First of all, in a time of war, a king would ride on a horse. But in a time of peace, he would ride on a donkey. So if Jesus came in in some majestic stallion, Jerusalem would have been put on alert. We're under attack. This guy's coming in as a threat. But coming in, on a donkey, it was a way of saying, I, I, I'm a king, but I come in peace, or I come to make peace, so to speak. Uh, again, we might think of a donkey as sort of a lowly animal, you know, something you might find down at the fairgrounds or a petting zoo, you know, walking in a sad circle somewhere. Um, I was thinking about like the Grand Canyon too. You can, you know, you can rent a ride at the Grand Canyon, one of these critters to take you down to the bottom and you know, the adults get the horses and the little guy gets the donkey in the back, right? And so that's what I continually see. But again, a young donkey was the mount of a king in a time of peace. Both his royalty is on display and both his peacemaking is on display here, particularly in the way that he's riding in. A second bit of this imagery that's important is, because there's this bit here about borrowing this donkey, which sounds funny. Uh, it kind of sounds like Jesus says, I'd like you to go take without asking, right? We call that theft or stealing. It looks that way. So I guess the word would be to commandeer this thing, right? We're gonna commandeer this, this cult. Uh, and I think it's humorous because as they're taking without asking or borrowing without asking, the neighbors say something. Hey, hey what, what gives here? And when they give Jesus answer, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's fine. You're gonna bring it back? Great, just 
bring it back clean and with the full tank, you know, we'll, we'll be good, right? Because um, I guarantee if I came home from church today and I found you in my garage and you were making off with my four-wheeler, uh, borrowing without asking, we would talk about that, you know? So what is this? What, what is happening here? Is this kind of like uh, a first century Uber or something? And I will say, actually, yes, it is. This is first century Uber, if you will. Uh, there's actually a practice here known as angaria. And angaria is a right that a king or a high political official would have to basically uh, use, without, uh, use something for temporary service. They could claim the right to an item or even a person for temporary service. So the fact that Jesus is claiming this is also an overt assertion of who he is, of who he claims to be. Uh, so once again, um, this right here being claimed, this reveals that Jesus is royalty, that he is a king. And also I think this little custom of Angaria is nice to know about. I might try to assert that this summer over your fishing boat, you know. <laughs> Pastor needs to go fishing. Another um, sort of bit of symbolism here is that riding on a donkey also explicitly fulfilled messianic prophecy. I won't go into this too much, but in Zechariah 9.9, we find this passage. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the reader is just meant to see all of this imagery, all of these symbols here to notice that as Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem at Passover, he is making an overt claim to be the messianic king that they have been waiting for, the one that was prophesied, the one who will bring peace. And not only um, is it clear that Jesus is making this claim, it's actually pretty clear that the people are, are getting it, that they understand what's happening based upon their response. One of those is the song that they pick up. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, uh, this song that we find here actually comes from a section of the Psalms known as the Hallel. The Hallel. And um, it's an interesting uh, bit of, of, of sort of music and a bit of their hymnody, if you will. But these Hallel Psalms Prior to Israel going into exile, these psalms would be sung at the coronation of a king. But when Israel was deported and went, in, and went into exile, when they came back, they didn't have a king. And so these songs were typically sung at Passover with messianic hope. They were singing about a future hope. The way we might sing uh, Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? You know this one that we do. And we, we sing this and we love it because it casts our eyes and our imagination forward until the time when Christ will return. In the same way that we sing that song, they would sing the Hallel here in hopefulness that a Messiah would come. What, what also is interesting here is that in Luke's account, uh, again, Luke, a physician who gives, tends, to, tends to give more detail, um, which we might expect from a physician, uh, he records the words here, uh, of their song and actually records that they insert a word. Because the psalm as it's written, as we read part of it earlier today, is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But in Luke's gospel, when they pick up the hallel on the song, they insert a word and you know what it is? 
king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The song being picked up by the people as Jesus rides into Jerusalem is, this is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They get it, or they get an aspect of it, at least. So this song that has been sung for generations in hope is now being sung in fulfillment. He is King Jesus. Now, I would also say, while they're saying this and singing this and and picking up an aspect of it, I don't think they grasp the full magnitude of it either. Uh, Last week, we looked at James and John. Remember, they come to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we want you to do, you know, whatever we ask for. Jesus, too smart to fall for that, says, what are you asking for? And they say, oh, we want one of us to sit on your right, one of us to sit on your left when you come in your glory. And as we looked at that, we kind of recognized they don't understand the full magnitude of what they're asking. They definitely want to help and be servants to Jesus and be honored when he uh, ascends the throne. But they're still thinking of an earthly political kingdom. They don't fully grasp the eternality of the kingdom of God and the seats of honor that they have requested, right? And that's what Jesus tells them. You don't know what you're asking. Well, I think that same kind of thing is here. I think this celebratory crowd that is acknowledging this is God's Messiah, this is a king, yes, this is one who has come to save, yes, but I think they still only see this as an earthly political reality And they don't have the full scope and the full magnitude of what Christ has really come to do. Jesus did come to save, but not simply from a political oppressor. He came to save from the penalty of sin for all of mankind. And so I want to take that and just kind of move that into some application for us. Uh, And the first question uh, for you is this. Do we grasp the magnitude of our own claims? We maybe claim to be a Christian, but is that just a nominal thing for you? Is it just something you say about yourself to keep grandma off your back? You went to church after all, you're a Christian, right? Is it just, are you Christian in name only or a cultural Christian? Or have you sincerely repented of your sin and turned in saving faith to Jesus who allowed it to be killed in him at the cross? In other words, have you crossed from death to life, from being an enemy of God to being reconciled to God and being brought in the family of God? That is done by repentance and faith, not just claiming a name. Do you grasp the magnitude of what you claim? Or secondly, you claim to be a Christian and you really have crossed over the line of faith. You have repented of sin. You have trusted in Jesus But are you really striving to follow Jesus? Are you his disciple? Are you an apprentice or a student of his? Are you learning his teachings? If asked on the street, what are the teachings of Jesus? Could you come up with any? And they are part of your pursuit as you try to take on increasingly the image and the nature of Christ. Are you living as his disciple? Or thirdly, we sang this morning that he is king. We sang that. We made you sing that. That's what we put in front of you. We set you up for this one. But is he king in your life? Does he have the sovereign authority 
in your life? Or do you just practice a bit of faith and mix in a lot of your sort of preferred culture? Do we understand the magnitude of what we claim? Is Jesus your savior? Is he your Lord? Is he king and sovereign over all in your life? So I hope you'll think on those things. Interestingly, this really dramatic um, day in Jerusalem kind of ends with sort of this anticlimactic ending here. If you look at verse 11, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts and you're thinking about all this pomp and circumstance and they're singing songs and palm branches and okay, something's about to happen. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. (laughs) They retired across the Kidron Valley up to Bethany uh, to rest for the night and they're gonna return in the morning. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing uh, but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. All right, there's a lot going on here, and this can be kind of a confusing section. And I want to give you sort of the interpretive key to understanding this Uh, Basically, in this particular passage, I want you to know that it structurally belongs together. There's a pattern here that indicates that. Do we have any quilters in the room? Any quilters? We have one. Okay. Okay, so we don't need a quilting minister here at the church. I guess we only got one. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in quilting, if you look at a quilt, you can kind of see the pattern of what somebody has put together there. And there is a pattern here, and it looks like this. It kind of goes A. B, and then back out to A. Uh, And so we have this A, cursing of the fig tree, B, sort of this cleansing of the temple, and then back to A, this finding the fig tree withered. Does that make sense? And what's happening here is when we see something, when we see a story sort of interrupted with another point, such that we see a pattern like this, we are meant to interpret these together that they're sort of tied together, making a same point, that one helps interpret the other. Um, So that's what's going on here. Mark is arranging this in such a way that we will see that the one thing has to do with the other. And the point that's really being made here is this. Jesus makes peace through confrontation. Uh, We probably all have friends or know somebody who is sort of peace at any cost. They won't ever confront or address something. Well, Jesus is one. He is a king who brings peace, but he brings peace through confrontation. And in this first round here, he curses this uh, fruitless fig tree. 
And you read this and you might think, Jesus, what are you doing here? I don't, I don't understand this because Mark even gives a little note, right? It wasn't fig season. Why is he angry at this tree? Does Jesus get grouchy when he's hungry? Can I ask that? <laughs> Someone thinks I can. Uh, you know, is this just a low blood sugar moment here? Even Bertrand Russell, the atheist philosopher, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, he cites this incident as one of the reasons why he doesn't respect Jesus very much. So that's interesting. And to Mr. Russell, I would say, you're failing to see the symbolism here. Basically, what is happening is this. Jesus, looking for a snack and finding none, uh, sees a teaching opportunity, a teachable moment an object lesson, and being the great teacher that he is, says, I'm going to instruct you from this. And so he curses this tree. And so the judgment and the subsequent withering of this fig tree actually is meant to serve as a picture of the judgment and subsequent withering of the temple and the religious leaders because of their fruitlessness. The one helps interpret the other. So he curses the fig tree, and then he confronts Israel's fruitless leaders. And somebody might say, well, maybe Mr. Russell, Bertrand Russell again, if he were here, he might say, that sounds a little harsh. After all, how bad of guys were they? What did they ever do to Jesus? Well, we remember the three passion predictions that Jesus has already given, right? We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Okay, well, let's, say, let's, let's put uh, our skeptic back to work here. That sounds a little like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe if Jesus hadn't been so unkind to, you know, this little fig tree and these religious leaders, well, maybe they wouldn't have treated him so badly. But our passage goes on to show us just some of the corruption that was going on here. Look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I want to kind of identify three things, uh, sort of three corruptions that are happening here that the religious leaders are complicit in. The first is this. They've neglected prayer. The citation that is given here from Jesus, this comes from Isaiah 57, and Mark's gospel uniquely quotes the whole line. You might be familiar with this in some of the other gospels where it says, my house is to be a house of prayer. Stop. But here, Mark quotes the whole line from Isaiah 57. My house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. For the nations. And this would have had a specific implication for Mark's audience, right? Suffering Christians in Rome, Gentiles. They would have seen, ah, we're included in what this house of prayer was meant to be. Uh, and also, I think what is exposed here is a way that Israel is actually practicing a form of their own nationalism here. And I think that's part of what Jesus confronts. 
Secondly here, another obstacle that they put up is specifically for Gentile worshipers. Uh, I brought a uh, diagram or a picture here of, of the temple. You maybe have seen something like this before. This is just a model, um, but it kind of shows the temple as it was in this particular day. And we have the, the center, the Holy of Holies and um, the key courts and whatever. But on the left and right here in that big open space in the middle, we find that to be the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a non-Jewish person, but God-fearing and you came for worship, this was the area that you would be particular welcome in. Well, it's in this region that they have filled up with all of these uh, sort of religious wares, if you will, and basically turned the temple into what looked like a farmer's market. So if you came from out of town, let's say you come down from Galilee or you had come from uh, a Gentile uh, region and you were coming to worship Yahweh, you would bring some, uh, or you would want sacrifices to offer, but you might not bring them all the journey with you. So when you got to Jerusalem, you would purchase them in town, in the marketplace. That's fine. You also might have a different currency than was accepted at the temple. There was a common temple currency that you were to give your financial offerings in. And so you would have to exchange whatever currency you had for what was accepted there. Again, you would do that in the marketplace. Fine. The problem was they brought the marketplace right into the temple. And so you have animals out here being sold for exorbitant prices. You have money changers giving exchange. So we'll happily take your money and give you the right currency for a small fee. And they were creating such a zoo-like experience here that it angered Jesus. They were particularly creating obstacles for Gentile worshipers. And then the third bit of corruption here is they have turned worship into a business. They were profiting off of these things. Uh, so yes, you can exchange your money, but for a fee, we're going to make sure that the temple is enriched by whatever happens here. So imagine this morning, imagine you walk into Bethel Church, you come into the foyer, and uh, instead of having a nice open space where you can greet one another and talk and say hi to your friends, you find the Bethel Merch Shop, where you can get trucker hats with Bethel logo on it and hoodies and bracelets, and you can get a little pendant that you can bring into service, and when the preacher's really going, you can wave it and say, yeah, keep going, yeah. Imagine you find a Bethel merch shop, and you sort of skitter past that, and there's an overpriced coffee area. You gotta buy your coffee, and it's overpriced. And a little bit beyond that is a churro counter, $5 a churro. And you, you keep coming in, and now you, you find out that a big sign on the door that says, uh, offerings uh, accepted cash only. And you think, I, I, don't, I didn't bring any cash. I don't carry cash. I love that bumper sticker that says, uh, man on board is married, carries no cash. I, I find that to be truthful. <laughs> so you think, oh no, I got some cash. No problem. We've got five ATM machines out in the lobby for you. Never mind the $10 service fee. If you walked into a church like this, would you feel like you were coming to worship? You, you would realize what that church worships is money. And it is using its place uh, to focus on that and not on God. That is what is happening here. And that is why Jesus reacts as he does. And I would also say this. It's very likely that this is the second cleansing of the temple. John records one earlier in his ministry. I know that my own anger goes up a little bit more the second time around, just being human. So Jesus is right to confront this. Um, 
And then we kind of find after he does this, it says they went out of the city, verse 20, in the morning, they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Well, again, there's a lot going on here. First of all, Jesus encourages the disciples about faith-filled prayer, faith-filled prayer. And I'll be honest with you, uh, in this whole passage this morning, this is, this is the toughest part for me personally. I don't know how prayer sets up in your own life. Maybe it's something that you do well. Maybe you have comfort in. Maybe, I don't know. But I struggle with prayer. And that might be disconcerting for you to hear from your pastor, but I do. I pray because God tells me to pray. But I find it to be a mystery, and I find that there are many things that I've prayed hard for, asking boldly for, and haven't received. So this is, this is a challenging passage for me. And I have found some comfort from uh, some wise thinkers over the years on this subject, C.S. Lewis being one of them. He says, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. That helps me a little bit. Or Tim Keller, who has said this, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. <laughs> and I like that a lot. That helps as well. But at the same time, I do not want to blunt the otherwise radical teaching of Jesus here just because it has not yet been my experience. I recognize that this mountain that he's referring to here, I think this is proverbial for whatever is impossible. And Jesus has already taught that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he asks us to pray for and ask for the impossible. And that in some mysterious way, faith-filled prayer moves the hand of God. I do not fully understand that, but I know God wants to do the impossible for his glory. But then just about when we're kind of liking, okay, that was great teaching. We're supposed to ask God for what we want. And if we ask confidently and in faith, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna get it. This, this sounds good. Here we go. Let's, uh, you know, let's ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. This is great. Then we get this record scratch moment here. And Jesus says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. And so what we find here is that stingy forgiveness is an obstacle between us and the Father. I'll tell you too that Matthew's gospel has an even sharper edge to it. In Matthew's gospel, he says this in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But then he says the negative. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Christian, that's sharp, yeah? 
Those are tough words. What are we to make of that? And I think the best understanding here that I have is is not that God is retributive here, but that rather what might be revealed is our actual spiritual condition. That is, if I am unwilling to forgive the offense or the sin of another person, fully understanding all that God has forgiven me, well, frankly, that just doesn't work. How can I claim the prerogative to withhold forgiveness when God has forgiven me so much? And so I think what's actually revealed here is that we may not grasp the grace and the mercy of God in our life, and therefore we may not be saved. If I can claim a prerogative that God didn't claim in my life, I'm not sure that I understand his grace and mercy. Let me say it another way. We are saved by the gospel and not by our works. But if our works betray an ignorance of the gospel, it may not be operational in our life. And I think that's what's at the root of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. I'll let you go there on your own. I'll also say this. Forgiveness is some of the hardest work we do. Have you ever had to forgive somebody? I mean, really? It is some of the hardest work we will ever have to do. In order to forgive somebody, it means that we were really wronged. They really did sin against us. They really offended us. We were hacked off. It was real. And it means we're going to really have to let them off the hook and let them go, and let them go with God. I think C.S. Lewis has described this better than anybody. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So to bring this to a close here, I think many people today, I think for many people, the Christian faith is a little little more than a religion of self-help. I just like a little bit of Jesus, please, to make my life a little bit better. What can I get from God? What good is he? And what we find here is that the religious leaders in the same fashion, they used the faith to feather their own nests and to serve themselves. And the fickle crowd who at the beginning of the week was declaring, Hosanna, save us, at the end of the week are declaring what? Crucify him. And when confronted with their failures, the religious leaders did not try to mortify their sin. Instead, they tried to mortify Jesus. So again, in this royal reveal, we're confronted with the fact that Jesus is king. He is a savior, yes, but he is King Jesus. He is not a simple commodity to add to our life. He is a savior and a king. That means he has the authority to commandeer anything in our life to judge our actions, to purge the debris of our disobedience, to grant our faith-filled prayers, to save us from our sins, and to command that our real faith be demonstrated through real forgiveness of others. Let's pray. Father, when we read the scriptures, we are confronted 
We are confronted with the sinful nature of ourselves. We are confronted here with the kingship and the royalty of Christ. And I pray, God, that we would not just see him as a commodity, this little accessory to our life, but as one who has complete authority over every area of our life. He is one who deserves our allegiance and our submission. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do your work in each heart, Lord. There's so much in this passage, not one of us can walk out of here without being cut a little bit this morning. So may we do our spiritual work with you. Teach us, encourage us, edify us, transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ, for we pray in his name, amen.